You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Some of you already know this, um, but I am a big, big fan of the um, series, The Lord of the Rings. It's not everyone's cup of tea. I get it. My wife, Cherise, does not like it at all. I don't understand why she doesn't like it, but she doesn't like it. Uh, but I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings. And if you know anything about Lord of the Rings, you recognize the theologically Christian tropes that are going on throughout the series. J.J.R. Tolkien is said to be a Christian, had a massive influence on C.S. Lewis, as a matter of fact. And every novel that you read, every movie that you watch, you just see shadows of the Christian faith emerging. Here's one example that directly applies to our passage in Ephesians. In the movie, the first one, The Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf the Grey is a wizard who has a knack of sensing danger. In addition to just being a cool wizard, Gandalf is a wizard who has massive discernment. Throughout the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Gandalf is a main character as he and others fight against evil and darkness. In the first movie, there's a point where Gandalf the Grey falls off a cliff, or a stone bridge to be more exact. He falls off, he goes to the ground, and we're left with this feeling that he's dead. (laughs) And you're wondering in your head, after that scene, like, how are they going to defeat evil without Gandalf? Gandalf the Grey, what are they going to do? But as every Lord of the Ring fan knows, Gandalf reemerges. But not as Gandalf the Grey, but as Gandalf the White. In Gandalf the White, there is a heightened sense of discernment and awareness about the battle against evil. What Gandalf realized in the moments of, of being Gandalf the Grey and Gandalf the White is a renewed sense of purpose. Through his death and resurrection, Gandalf was like instantly changed. Christians have undergone a similar transformation. However, the transformation isn't about new clothes, although putting on new clothes is certainly metaphorical for transformation, especially when you talk about the righteousness of Christ, that's certainly there. The spiritual transformation here is about putting to death an old self and putting on a new self. It's about being transformed from from death to life. I'm going to argue from, from this passage that the differences between your old self and your new self, if you are a Christian, are so stark that there's actually no rightful comparison. Even the story about Gandalf falls short, frankly. Here in our passage, we see the, a distinction highlighted. On the screen, I put it into bold, the contrast. Here it is, Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to, here we go, put on the new self created after, after what? What are you created after? (laughs) We're going to talk about this later in the sermon. The likeness of God. 
and true righteousness and holiness. That word self, by the way, its root is anthropos. So you could also say old self or old man, new self or new man. Have it either way. Makes the same point. So there are two commands. Put off the old self and put on the new self. If you do not put off the old self, you cannot take on the new self. Got to put off that old man if you want to put on the new man. Lukewarm Christianity is not an option. You cannot be the old self and the new self at the same time. The old self has to come off. Too many people are trying to put a new self right over the old self. But no, you, you take that old self, you put it away, and then you put on a new self. And here's what we also need to acknowledge in light of Paul's command here. The putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new self is actually God's creation. It's part of his design. It's part of his plan of redemption. The late Anglican theologian and pastor John Stott had this to say about Ephesians 4, 23 and 24. He says this, In this teaching, the divine and the human are beautifully blended. In the command to exchange our old humanity for a new one, Paul is not implying that we can bring about our own new birth. Nobody has ever given birth to himself. Go see John 3 in the story of Nicodemus. The very concept, Stott says, is ludicrous. You can't do it. No, the new humanity we assume is God's creation. It's part of God's plan of redemption, not ours. Stott also implies that the old self, the old self, is about yourself. And the new self is about Christ. Catch that? The old self is about yourself. And the new self is about Christ. It's about Jesus. The old self produces deceitful desires. The new self produces righteousness and holiness. The old self is bound to Adam, the first father, our first father. And the new self is bound to Christ, the righteous and sinless Savior. What the New Testament says, the second Adam Our passage is so straightforward, I think, it is nearly impossible to walk away without being confronted by the facts. Everyone in this room, when I say everyone, I mean absolutely everyone, regardless of age and gender, everyone in this room can be challenged by what what God says in this passage. I imagine in this room, there are at least three perspectives that a person may hold about how to wrestle with this passage and indeed this particular sermon. Number one, if you are a Christian, you will see what you once were compared to who you are today. And you have much to rejoice in. (laughs) You can rejoice in what God has done in your life, the work he has done in your life. At the same time, Philippians 2.12 is certainly true. Continue to work out your salvation with what? With fear and trembling. Just because you are saved does not mean you are to engage in the thoughts and desires of the old self. You don't go back there. The old self is dead. The old self is dead, Christian, so stop trying to resurrect it. It's dead. That's the first 
group of people who might be looking at this from a particular perspective. Here's the second group of people that I have in mind. If you're not a Christian, you will be confronted with the cold, dark reality that your life is controlled by your deceitful desires. Verse 22. What controls you? These deceitful desires. If you're not a Christian, I want you to hear from me. You do not see rightly with all due respect. It's like being in a room with the lights out. It's dark. You can't see. However, God can break in at any moment. Maybe God will use this particular passage to bring you to a place of repentance and to believe in the truth of Jesus Christ. And may God, by the power of the Spirit, indeed do that if you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. In his mercy, may he break in and cause you to see the truth of the gospel so that you are no longer being deceived by selfish desires. That's the second group of people, third group of people. If you don't know if you have the old self or the new self, this passage can help you evaluate your heart. For example, it is not unusual for children and adults to grow up in the church to wrestle with matters of faith. Like, what's God doing, you know? Perhaps you said a prayer, which is excellent. But you're trying to figure out if God is at work in your life. It's legitimate questions, right? Certainly. Well, my encouragement to you is pray to God as you listen to this sermon for clarity, right? Wrestle with God's word. Ask, am I clothed with the old self or the new self? Because I already said it earlier, you can't have it both ways. Are you clothed with the old self or the new self? Now to the passage at hand. Paul is adamant that the transition from the old self to the new self means observable transformation. So that very intentionally, observable transformation. Observable transformation happens after the truth of Jesus, verse 22, is shot through the body, affecting everything in your life. Everything. When the gospel is shot through your life, when, when God gives you the faith to believe, it doesn't just affect this one particular area. No, it affects everything. Everything. The distinction between the old self and the new man or the new self is so important to the Apostle Paul that it says he testifies to the difference. Verse 17, he testifies. The Greek word behind testify is actually martyr. Paul is bearing witness to what he profoundly knows to be true. I mean, for a moment, think about what you know to be true. What are you willing to testify about in your particular life? What are you willing to say? What are you willing to testify about, even if it's like unpopular and you might get canceled or whatever? Paul is testifying to what he knows to be true. And he's willing to die for it. Because if you're redeemed, what Paul testifies about in this passage is good news. If you're not redeemed, you will be jarred and perhaps offended. First Peter 2 nails the tension and distinction in Ephesians 4. The Apostle Peter, I think, is just on the same page as Paul here. God's word says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, God's word says, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's the good news, right? 
Jesus is the cornerstone. If you believe in the cornerstone, you will not be put to shame. And everyone said, amen. And then Peter continues. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a what? A rock of offense. For some people, they remain in the old self and they have rejected the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We read Christ is even offensive to those who remain in the old self, which is like not a shock. Truth is polemical by nature. Right? You speak something that's true, someone's bound to get offended, especially in our culture. It is offensive. However, for those who took off, to go back to Gandalf for a moment, who took off the gray robes and put on the white robes, the cornerstone, Jesus, is an absolute joy. Peter even makes the point by quoting the prophet Isaiah here. Those who believe in Christ will not be put to shame. If you are a Christian, so you rejoice in what God has done. If you're not a Christian, you're being confronted by the truth that in this world, in this world, in this room, in every room I preach in, there's always two groups of people sitting in front of me. Two. Some people who have rejected Jesus and some people who have been saved by the grace of God because of Jesus. We can really understand the depths of the contrast by connecting the old self and the new self to Adam. So, think Genesis. I've already mentioned it, but I want to make the connection more explicit. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 to 47, it says this, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. So, the first Adam was created by God. God created him from the dust. If you've read Genesis 1, Genesis 2, you know that. The second Adam, Jesus, is a life-giving spirit. He wasn't created from the dust. <laughs> the second Adam, he came from heaven. And if I stopped right there, and if you're a Christian, you'd all be like, what's the big deal? Get it. God created Adam. Good. Agreed. And Jesus is from heaven. Awesome. <laughs> well, here in 1 Corinthians 15, if we backed up a little bit, a theological point is made here regarding what we see in Ephesians 4. Here's what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For all in Adam have died. All in Adam have died, so all in Christ shall be made alive. That's really important. Now, you should know that Romans 5.8 makes the same theological con connection. Now, I don't usually quote this much scripture when I preach a particular sermon. I try to stay you know, connected to the text as much as possible, but it, it just seems warranted. We've got to do a little biblical theology here and understand the connections with this old self and this new self. The old self is in Adam. The new self is in Christ. The old self in Adam is dead because all people have sinned in Adam. There's no person born to this world that does not have a sinful nature. We call that in theological terms total depravity. 
Not a person born into this world that does not have a sinful nature because that person was born in this world bound up in Adam. The Adam from the dust. You have to undergo a spiritual resurrection. Christ overcomes your sin problem through his atoning death on the cross. The only way to go from death to life is to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. If you have faith, then you are no longer in Adam, but you are made alive in the second Adam, who is Jesus. We should not be surprised that we are once again making connections here to our union with Christ. Because if you've been tracking along from Ephesians 1, the book of Ephesians is all about our union with Christ. How we, how we are united to him. So with the old versus the new and Adam versus Christ, this whole dynamic in view, let's look at the firm and unambiguous language used to describe the old self and the new self. Evidence of an old self and new self is seen in how you live. What did Jesus say in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 7 more specifically? You shall know them by their fruit. You should know them by their fruit. You shall know a person and what they believe by what you see in their life. So the new self does not live like the Gentiles. Here's the direct warning in verse 17 of Ephesians 4. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The change from the old self to the new self is not just ontological. It's not something that's kind of a theory or something talking about your being. There's more going on here. There's something very practical going on. That's what Paul is trying to say. Yes, is about your standing before God, but it's also about how you live before God. Do not walk as the Gentiles do. Who are the Gentiles? The Greek word for Gentiles here is ethnos, which can also be translated, and I find this helpful and clarifying, also translated as nation or a people. The sense here is that the church and Christians within the church are a part of a culture from which they are to be distinct from. They are a part of a culture in which they need to be distinct. They're called to be distinct. Paul not only says, don't be like them, but he tells the Ephesian church why we should not be like the Gentiles. Why you are called to be distinct. I'm reminded by what Pastor Rob said last Sunday when we had church in the park. I'm reminded about what he said about Christians. And if you haven't listened to that sermon, I encourage you to go listen to it. It's a fantastic message. He said, it's okay to be weird. I had somebody text me afterwards, and the individual wanted to make a t-shirt out of it, and I'm like, kind of like, where are you going with this? It's okay to be weird. Rob said something to the effect, we act weird because we are weird. (laughs) He's right. Christians act differently from the Gentiles, or as we say it today, from the culture. And I promise you, as each day passes And as you stand on the truth of God's word, guess what? The weirdness is only going to be heightened. (laughs) It's going to be heightened. And we have to be comfortable with being weird. Do you know the idiom, you need to be comfortable in your own skin or your own clothes? Well, the new self is going to look weird to those in the world. And we need to embrace and rejoice in our weirdness. Now, 
we need to compare and contrast the old self from the weird new self. We read at the end of verse 17 that the Gentiles are walking in a particular way, right? Paul gets very specific. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. This is extremely strong language from Paul. Darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance, the ignorance that's in them, due to their what hardness of heart. Pharaoh, anyone? Hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, promiscuity, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. So some, let me just tick off some words here that we see in this particular passage. Futility of the minds, darkened, alienated, ignorance, callous, sensuality, greedy, impurity. I mean, Paul's laying all of his cards on the proverbial table. <laughs> Don't walk like the Gentiles. This is quite a list. And as you look at this passage, and then you look at the culture, what do we see? Not much changed, is it? Not much has changed. Because why? Without Christ, you're bound to the second Adam, to the first Adam, excuse me. And that sin nature just rules. From Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 19, which we just read, we see that there are two aspects in which the old self is operating, two aspects of, of, a, of a human being. The first is intellectual aspects, and the second is desire. I'm going to kind of break it down, intellectual and desire. The effects of Adam's sin had an effect in the entire being. In the old self, your mind and your heart are rotten to the core. It's these same areas that are also given life when a person is redeemed. So let me first talk about what's going on like in between the ears here, and then I'll explain what's going on in the heart. Futility, verse 17, is describing an empty mind. We also see how that the old self had a darkened understanding of the world. In other words, these Gentiles continue in darkness in their reasoning process, verse 18, how they reason in the world. The point Isaiah tells us that, so if we go back to the prophet Isaiah, just for a moment here, and this is not going to be on the screen, but I was thinking about this this morning as I was going over my, my notes. The prophet Isaiah tells us the nature of a darkened reasoning process. Perhaps you caught this as our community groups has made our way through the book of Isaiah. I mean, this is what we see right now. This is what a darkened mind looks like. Woe to those who call evil good. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I mean, that is exactly what it looks like for someone to not have a godly reasoning process. Things that we call justice or evil. Things that are evil are called justice. I mean, I could spend the rest of this time comparing and contrasting the things that we've flipped around from God's word about what is good and what is evil, what is justice and what is injustice. When it comes to the intellectual aspects of the old self, it is easiest to say that there was a completely different worldview at work. A worldview is a lens in which you understand the culture or the world around you. So for example, if you're into photography, I'm not, but I know friends who are into photography. It's like putting a lens on the camera. Every, every time you take a picture, there's a different lens. And through that lens is, is how the picture is taken. So similarly, 
We have a lens over our eyes, and depending on that lens will impact how we understand the culture around us, how we understand the world around us, how you understand cultural events, theology, politics, the family, etc. The old self is incapable of seeing the world as God sees the world. The old self sees the world through whatever lens is desired or whatever, whatever the culture is dishing out at the moment. Several weeks ago, I had mentioned how critical race theory is a worldview that is not congruent with the gospel. CRT is offering a totally different way of looking at the world. Other religions do the same thing. Other philosophies do the same thing. A set of principles are established, how you understand God, man, sin, etc., and the principles inform your opinions and perspectives. We read here that if your mind has not been redeemed by Christ, you are living in ignorance. Verse 18. God said it, not me. If your mind has not been redeemed by the gospel, you're living in ignorance. You lack the information necessary to rightly understand the world. You lack the information necessary to understand yourself. You lack the information necessary about how to be reconciled to God because of the chasm that exists between you and God because of sin. The only way the puzzle pieces are able to come together is if God breaks in and gives you faith to begin to put the puzzle pieces together so you see the picture. When that happens, the picture becomes clear and you know God was at work. Now here's some thoughts on what a redeemed mind looks like. Paul's Abundantly clear what it doesn't look like. Now let's talk about what it looks like. Take a look at verse 20. God's word says, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. So learned, heard, and taught. Our minds begin to go to like a classroom setting. Learned, heard, thought. And in verse 23, we read that it's the spirit that renews the mind. It's the Spirit at work which allows you to receive the truth of Christ. Romans 12, 2 cannot be a more clear about what is going on in the mind of a redeemed individual. Paul says in Romans, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the what? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Do you want to know the will of God for your life? Well, let's begin with this particular passage right here. You need to be renewed in your mind. That doesn't happen. You walk aimlessly. When a person is transformed in the mind, he or she begins to see the world as God sees it. Faith in the gospel transforms the mind. There is an instant transformation when a person is saved, and there is ongoing transformation in the life of a Christian, right? If you're a Christian, you know that. There's an instant transformation, but you know what? Justification and sanctification are both realities. We continue to grow into the likeness of Christ. I'll give you one uh, practical example of how transformation of the mind impacts the fruit a person bears in life. Here's what happens when a person goes from the old self to the new self. And by the way, it is a touchy topic, 
but I did my best to um, speak about it in such a way that many sensibilities are, are uh, helped. Pornography. Now, we already talked about promiscuity and sensuality. And I'm going to talk about Romans 12, 1 here in a moment. Or excuse me, Romans 1. Pornography is an excellent example of what transformation looks like. The old self can engage in looking at porn over and over with little reason to stop. There might be some intuitive moral reasons, but nothing concrete, nothing foundational. The old self cares very little if the person on the screen is being, say, objectified. The mind of the old self carries little about the consequences of sin, nor the under, underlying realities of the given situation. When God breaks in and gives faith and the Spirit renews the mind, pornography is understood from an entirely new perspective. The person on the screen is not to be objectified, but what? Is an image bearer of God. The old self is not capable of understanding the sin of porn from God's perspective. It takes a complete transformation and a renewal of the mind. Sure, there might be touch points with some non-Christians about this kind of evil, evil, I get it, but it takes the Holy Spirit to renew the mind to see how the gospel impacts this kind of evil and how the gospel changes your mind. Yes, I know it's a touchy subject, but I think that particular, so this particular subject help make, helps make the point of what the gospel does, of what it looks like from going from the old self to the new self. I could use many examples, I get it. But promiscuity and sensuality is one of the chief areas that must be transformed. Okay, here's the second aspect of your life that needs to be renewed and transformed. Verse 23 says that the desires need to be transformed. Where do desires come from? Generally speaking, desires come from the heart. Uh, Psalm 37. Yes, the mind and the heart are connected. What is in your mind helps shapes the desires that are in your heart and coming out of your heart and shaping your life. Again, when we consider human beings, we need to think in holistic terms. We shouldn't compartmentalize the various aspects of a person. The mind's over there. Uh, my desires and hearts are over there and how I live is over there. Nope, it's not what's going on. In terms of desires, we read that the old self gravitates toward the self. Even in verse 18, we read how a darkened mind creates a hardened heart. Hardened toward what? Hardened to live a life that honors God. Let's go back to Ephesians 4 verse 1. What does it say? How are Christians to live in contrast to what we read here in Ephesians 4 verses 17 to 24? I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Paul says, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. And he doesn't stop there. He lays out what that calling looks like for your life, Christian. You're supposed to walk with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in what? How do we bear? We talked about this a lot. We bear, we bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Can't read that passage and then go look at porn. That is what taking off the old self and putting on the new self looks like. There is a whole new set of desires at work in the heart. A whole new set of desires. Here's how a person's desires manifest when a heart is not for God. And this is just what we've read in Ephesians 4. A person can become callous, meaning a person has no feelings about God. 
A person's desires are given up to already looked at sensuality, promiscuity, meaning there's no, no sexual morals that a person needs to adhere to or that they are adhering to. We also see that the old self has a darkened heart and a, a darkened heart with this intense desire for greed. And if you're reading this passage, you might think, man, this passage sounds really familiar to another passage in the Bible. If I could only figure out where that, oh, Romans 1, I already mentioned it. It just, you put them right together, read them side by side. What does Romans 1, 18 to 25 say? It's not on the screen, I'm just going to summarize it for you. It talks about ungodly and unrighteous people who suppress the truth. They live by their own truth with manifest itself in ungodly desires. The old self does not honor God or give thanks to God. The old self honors the self and gives thanks to the self. <laughs> Look at me. Ha. The old self claims to be wise when in reality the old self is a fool. The old self aims to steal glory from God. The old self has an insatiable desire to see glory for themselves. And as we've already seen from Ephesians 4, we read that the old self seeks to fulfill countless lustful desires. Now, I'm not preaching Romans 1 because we can talk very specifically what's going on there. But I would summarize the desires of the old self with one word, idolatry. How do I sum up the old self of Sean Powers? Idolatry. Even more specific, using a few more words, what we see is the idolatry of the self. Here's what that mentality looks like. Everything is all about me and what I want to do, how I want to do it, and when I want to do it. And Christians do not walk with this mentality. The darkened mind which impacts a dark heart manifests desires that only serve the self. These desires are unholy and unrighteous. But what about the desires of the new self? We read in verse 24, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In everything that I've said, Verse 24 is actually quite fascinating for several reasons. God created everything good, Genesis 1 and 2. Man and women were created in God's image and in his likeness. But we read in Genesis 3, Adam had a real bad day. Thanks, Adam. Real bad day. From that point forth, everything God created has been tainted by sin. Because God is holy, he can have nothing to do with sin. But then we read in Ephesians 4:24 that there is a way back to restoration. There is a way back to the likeness of God. There's a way back to righteousness and holiness. The way back is the regeneration of the heart. The way back to God is to be given the gift of faith, to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way to navigate the path from the old self to the new self is through complete surrender to God. Surrender. You surrender to God your thoughts and your desires. After you've done that, surrender some more. You ask God to transform your mind, the desires of your heart, and your actions. I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to you. Promise. Promise. Surrender. It takes surrendering your entire life to God for you to begin to conform into the likeness of the Savior, Jesus Christ. 
because we all want that, right? If you're a Christian, that's what you want, to become more like your Savior, the one who died on a cross for your sin, who forgave you. We want our lives to be bound up in the second and sinless Adam, Jesus. So from our text, we read, the old self is about the self, and the new self is all about Christ. The old self produces deceitful desires, and the new self produces righteousness and holiness. So yeah, it's good to be weird, to go back to that. To take on the righteousness and holiness of Christ, and therefore to reclaim, to reclaim the likeness of God. Stunning. Reclaiming the likeness of God only happens when you are in Christ, when you are united to Christ, which is, this, which is the title of this entire series, United in Christ. And God must intervene. And then the end result, after God in, intervenes, a bunch of Jesus-loving, truth-telling Christians who are living for a good and gracious God. How do we live for a good and gracious God? By taking every thought captive, right? And pursuing, pursuing desires that honor Christ. We must live in the reality of the new self. Yes, life is hard. Christ defeated the power of sin, but we also know remaining sin is here. So we fight, but we fight with joy. Knowing that God is indeed with us. And he's working in us. So let's live in the reality of the new self if you're a Christian. If you're not, I encourage you to pray, plead, plead with God. Take off the old self and put on the new self. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.